important Asia Minor missionary trips. And when Paul is writing the last chapter of his life, just before his martyrdom, before he dies, he writes to Timothy and he tells Timothy about Mark. And here's what he says about him in, first, in 2 Timothy 4. He is useful. He is profitable to me and to the ministry. Paul says when it comes to John Mark, that same one who tucked tail and ran when we set out on the first missionary journey, I want you to know something about him. He's profitable. He's useful for me personally and also for the kingdom of God as it moves forward. Now, I would say that was an understatement of Paul when he said he was useful for the ministry. But let me ask you something. If you are God and you could choose any human in the world to pin down the very first account of the gospel, because Mark was the very first gospel account, it comes second to Matthew in our New Testament, but it was written before any other gospel account. Would you choose someone who was flawed? Would you choose someone who at one time was useless to the ministry? Would you choose someone who when the going gets tough, they get going? I probably wouldn't. The apostle Paul surely wouldn't. He wouldn't even take him on the second trip with him. But you know what God did? God said, John Mark, you're going to record this gospel account. And what a reminder of the grace of Almighty God that he does not use perfect people because there are no perfect people. He uses flawed people. He uses failures. He uses people like you and people like me. And let me ask you something. Do you feel flawed? Do you feel like a failure? Maybe you stepped out of your comfort zone and you attempted to do something for God, and it did not work out, and you feel like you felt miserably. Maybe you washed your hands and says, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> you feel like you let God down, you let others down, you let the church down, and you really feel useless, not useful. Well, the gospel of Mark, just reading that he wrote the gospel, is a reminder to us that you are the type of person, I'm the type of person that uses he uses flawed people and he is a gracious God who is the God of a second chance so don't wallow in the misery of your failures and in your past letdowns but be useful for God be useful for the ministry and work for the kingdom of God the gospel of Mark reminds us God uses flawed people it also reminds us that God encourages weary people now, I'm going to say something here about the background and the context of the Gospel of Mark, and then we'll dive into the text. But there's two ways that I find here in the opening verses, uh, one way that I find in the opening verse, and another way I find in the context of the book that God, through Mark, encourages weary people. And the first is this. He encourages weary people by sharing our experience. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the gospel of Mark is about the Son of God who becomes a human, who becomes a man in order to fully experience our humanity. Now, I told you Mark's gospel is the very first gospel that was written uh, of the four gospel accounts. It was written somewhere around A.D. 70, and that's significant because of what was going on. Uh, based on the Greek and the language of Mark, Mark was written to Romans, written to a Roman congregation, a Roman audience, and that's significant as well. 
Because history teaches us that in A.D. 64, something happened in Rome that was horrible, horrendous. The fires broke out in, in Rome that nearly destroyed the entire city of Rome. Ten out of 14 wards in Rome were completely abolished, destroyed by the fires that swept through the city. Nero was the Roman emperor. And suspicion arose that the fires in Rome were ordered by the government. That Nero ordered the city of Rome to be set on fire. Uh, there is legend that Nero played violin while Rome burned. And so he came under suspicion. There were people who were wondering, did he really do this? And he was under heat. So what did he do? Well, first he tried to win their sympathy by implementing programs that would take care of the homeless, help those who were injured through the fires, but that didn't stop the rumors and the suspicions. And so Nero, being a maniacal madman and wanting to be loved, decided he needed a scapegoat. And do you know who he blamed for the Roman fires? He blamed those who belonged to this new sect, this new religion that was taking over the world. He blamed Christians. When he blamed Christians for the fires that, that destroyed Rome, he arrested Christians, falsely charged Christians, condemned Christians to die. Christians were dipped in tar, put on poles, and lit so that they could light the city of Rome at night. They burned. Nero's garden was lit at night by Christians who had been dipped in tar, crucified, and set on fire. He covered Christians in the dead skin of animals, put them out in the Colosseums and turned the wild beasts loose on them while spectators watched in marvel as Christians were literally torn asunder before their very eyes. Christians were hunted down like animals, so much so that they had to find, they had to exist underneath ground in the catacombs in Rome. They were driven underground, and they were hotly persecuted by Rome. Mark writes his gospel account to those believers. He writes those, this gospel account to those who are suffering under the hand of Roman persecution. Now just imagine, imagine how encouraging it would be for you as a Christian Living in the catacombs, driven there by a, a, a Roman government that hates you, to read the gospel according to Mark. As, as Rome drives you and others into the dark catacombs, you read about the Lord Jesus, who too was driven in the darkness of the wilderness by the Spirit. He knows what that is like. As a believer, while you and others are paraded around in the Colosseum and fed to wild beasts, you read in the Gospel of Mark that while Jesus was in the wilderness, he was there in the darkness with wild animals. By the way, is the only Gospel that mentions that Jesus faced wild animals while he was in the wilderness. How encouraging would it be as a believer in first century Rome as you are being falsely accused, wrongfully convicted, and others are being cruelly condemned on crosses to read of your Savior who just like you was falsely condemned, wrongfully convicted, and cruelly condemned to die on a Roman cross. And as you and others are being killed one after the other, 
How encouraging would it be to read that after dying on the cross, that our Savior was raised again to victory and to life forevermore. You read the Gospel of Mark, and you cannot help but see that Jesus, the Son of God, is very much indeed the suffering servant of Yahweh promised in the Old Testament who suffers with us and for us and he knows exactly what it is that we are going through. Do you know when we are suffering sometimes, it's just encouraging to know that someone else has been where we're at. Uh, This morning I talked to a parent who, who... uh, their child died last year and talked with them. And, you know, a- anytime I talk to a parent who's lost a child and buried a child, I-, I feel so inadequate to talk to them because I don't know what that's like. I've never been there. I can't say I know what you're going through. But those of you who have experienced that, when you hug them and you tell them, I've been there, I know what it's like, That is a comfort to those who are there. Well, beloved, when we read the gospel of Mark, we are reminded that we have someone who came to this earth, fully partook in our humanity, and he knows exactly what it is that we are going through. And and Mark's gospel reminds us of that. Have you been rejected by others? Mark tells us, so is Jesus. Have you been heartbroken? Well, Mark's gospel tells us, So is Jesus. Have you been burdened by the state of unbelievers? Well, Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus was moved with compassion because he saw the multitudes as being sheep wandering without a shepherd. Have you been lonely? Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus could not even have his three intimate disciples stay awake with him one night while he prayed. Have you had to deal with unbiblical traditions that muddy water and the clarity and the beauty of the gospel? Well, Mark tells us Jesus dealt with that too, with those who wanted to wash their hands after everything. They wanted to be clean but did not know that they were dirty in their soul. Have you felt like you face Satan on a daily basis? Well, Mark's gospel tells us Jesus did that. Over and over and over again, Jesus faces demonic forces and demonic power. He faces Satan on a regular basis throughout the gospel of Mark. Have you ever felt like you could fall beneath the weight of your own cross? Well, Mark tells us, the only gospel that records it, that Jesus falls beneath the weight of his own cross. And one named Simon of Serene was commanded, demanded to carry the cross for Jesus up the hill to Calvary. You see, Mark's gospel is so encouraging to me, and I hope it is to you as well, because it reminds me that no matter what you're going through, Jesus has been there. He knows. He can sympathize with you. And we have one in heaven that when we go to him, he can empathize with us because he's been where we are at. And so by sharing our experience, he encourages us when we're weary. But the second way he encourages us is by keeping his word. This is where we jump into the text. As telling us that his gospel is about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the next four words are paramount because verse 2 says, as it is written, as it is written, meaning that the gospel he is going to tell us about is not 
new news. It's good news. But it's old news that was delivered in the Old Testament by the prophets. In particular, the prophet Isaiah. Mark really uh, positions his gospel around the prophecy of Isaiah. Again, which portrays Jesus as the suffering servant of Jehovah. In verse 2, there's a quote from Malachi 3. This was what was written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. And then from Isaiah 40, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make paths straight. Now what's going on here? Well, Mark begins telling us it's about the gospel. And then he tells us that this gospel was prepared. It was promised beforehand. And then he seems to go completely off course. Because he starts talking not about Jesus. Again, no mention of his birth, no mention of his life, not even a mention of Jesus yet. But he starts talking here about a preacher, a man by the name of John. We call him John the Baptist. Historians call him John the Baptizer. He was a cousin of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his purpose in life was to prepare a people and make a people ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has one of the most unique ministries in all of God's word. And he is, outside of the Lord Jesus, probably my favorite preacher in, the, or in all of the Bible. You know, I love preachers. Preachers are funny people. Preachers are odd people. Uh, but, you know, sometimes I imagine what I wouldn't give to have been at some particular moments in church history and heard what some preachers said at the moment that they said, I, I would have loved to have been in Geneva after Calvin had been run out of the city three years earlier by the council, and then they ended up begging him to come back. When the reformer returned to Geneva and took to the pulpit as the congregation waited for him to absolutely blister them, I would have loved to have seen the reformer open his Bible to the very next verse from where he left off three years earlier and pick up the same exposition and just preach the gospel that morning. I would have loved to have been there. I would have loved to have been at the Diet of Worms when all of Luther's writings and his books were put on trial and he was demanded to recant. When Luther tells them there is no authority in the popes and there is no authority in councils because they always contradict each other. And then he bows his head and he prays, God help me, amen. And then he says, here I stand. I can do no other. I would have loved to have been there. Or to have seen the age John Knox preach during the reign of Bloody Mary. And yet he preached without fear. He preached without favor. He preached without compromise. And they literally said he tore the pulpit up every single Sunday. To have been in New England when Jonathan Edwards preached the sermon, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And sinners tore pews and climbed over one another to, to repent of their sins. Those would have been great times and I would have loved to have seen them. But I would, have, I would gladly give up all of those experiences if I could have them to trade them for what we read here in Mark's gospel. To see this strange, unusual preacher preaching in the wilderness John the Baptist. He had the most unusual area of ministry at all, of all. It was the wilderness. He did not go to town square. He went to the wilderness. Why? 
We'll see this more next week. Because what God do in the Old Testament, he led his people into the wilderness before he led them out into that promised land. And through John the Baptist, we see a repeat that God is bringing his people out to the wilderness. They're repenting of their sins so that he might lead a new exodus by a new Joshua, a new Israel coming forth for his praise and for his glory. His message is strange as well. He's proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Now, up to this point, if a Gentile wanted to proselytize, wanted to become a Jew, they would go through certain ceremonial washings. But this isn't Gentiles becoming Jews. This is Jews repenting. Israelites repenting. And not only repenting, but they're being baptized. Not a sprinkle. The word baptized means to fully immerse. He's immersing, immersing them. He is, he is planting them in the River Jordan. And they're coming forward as a symbol of repentance. Then think of his apparel. Very unusual. He's wearing camel's hair and a leather girdle. What is that about? I mean, is John making a fashion statement? <laughs> and by the way, it's not one of those camel hair jackets that you see people wear in the wintertime. It's just animal skin. Why? Why do the Gospels pay attention to that? Well, because Malachi chapter 4 made this statement that before the Lord comes, I will send you my servant Elijah. Now, there's only one problem with that. When Malachi says God's going to send Elijah before the day of the Lord, Elijah's not dead. He's in heaven where he was carried up in chariots of fire. So is God going to send Elijah back down to this earth? Is he? Well, hold your place in Mark. Let me just show you this. Go back to 2 Kings chapter 1. 2 Kings chapter 1. Remember what God said in Malachi. I'm going to send Elijah before the day of the Lord, before the coming of the Lord. Now, we know that this is in, in 2 Kings chapter 1. 1 Kings deals with the ministry of Elijah. 2 Kings starts off with Elijah denouncing uh, the king Ahaziah. But there's talk about what's going on. And just look at verse 8. It says, they answered him. He wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, this is the king, it's Elijah, the Tishbite. When, when he heard what Elijah wore, animal skin, leather girdle around his waist, he knew it was Elijah. Fast forward to Mark. Why is it that Matthew and Mark and the other gospel writers always tell us exactly what it is that John the Baptist is wearing animal's hair and, and leather girdles. Why? Because it is a reminder to us that God did not send Elijah to this earth before Jesus came. He sent John the Baptist to this earth as Jesus came, and John fulfilled that promise. And if you don't believe me, all you have to do is ask Jesus. Jesus says, this is Elijah who is to come before me. So what we have here is God fulfilling his promise to send Elijah, his prophet, to prepare a people ready for the Lord. 
Now he has unusual appetite as well. Scripture says he eats locusts and wild honey. I mean, John's idea of eating that is, is, is to find some grasshoppers and go visit a beehive. That's, that's, what John, that's what John wants to eat. That's what he has to eat out in the wilderness. But notice his humility as well. Here's what he preached in verse 7. After me comes he who is mightier than I. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water. and He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's message was not about himself. John's message was about the one who was to follow him. The one who was coming. John's message was about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, listen, I'm doing something with water. I'm baptizing. But the one who follows me, he is going to baptize you, immerse you with the Holy Spirit of God. He's got a superior baptism of me than I do. And matter of fact, he is so much greater than me that I'm not even worthy to reach down and unlatch his sandals. That was the, that was the, small, that was the smallest task that a servant had to do when someone came into someone's home. And here's what John is saying by that. I'm not even worthy to be his servant. I'm not even worthy to be spoken of in the same breath as he is. As a matter of fact, a little later in his ministry, as Jesus' ministry explodes throughout the region, John's disciples kind of get a little jealous of Jesus. You know how that goes sometimes. And they come to Jesus and they say, Hey, John, Jesus' ministry surpassing yours. You got 75 on Sunday morning. He's running 500 right now. I mean, he has, he has eclipsed you. What do you think of that, John? John says, I rejoice over that. He must increase and I must decrease. Hey, John says, you fellows don't see what's going on here. This is the big wedding. And Jesus is the groom. I'm... Just a friend of the bridegroom. I mean, you don't go to a wedding and afterwards everybody talk, boy, did you see that best man? Huh? Wasn't he sharp? Boy, he just stole the show. As a matter of fact, if it wasn't for pictures, most people wouldn't even remember who the best man is in most weddings. Why? Because they're not the center of attention. Who's the center of attention? The groom and the bride. And John says, I'm just a groomsman. He's the groom. Let him be all in all. Beloved, no wonder Jesus said of men born of, men born of woman, there is none greater than John the Baptist. What is he doing? He's preaching and proclaiming, but don't miss this. Why is he doing it? He's doing it because thousands of years earlier, at least 700 years earlier, by the prophet Isaiah, God promised he was going to do it. What we have in the opening verses of Mark is God delivering on his promise. He's going to send a suffering servant. He did it. He's going to send a messenger to prepare the way. He did it. And to me, it is a glorious reminder that God keeps his word. I've got news for you. The sun may cease to give light. The stars may fall out of the sky. The earth may reel and rock like a drunk man. But not one single promise of God will go unfulfilled. And thus, you can build your life on it. You can build your eternity on it. And do you know, there were some rocky times in between the promise and the fulfillment of those promises. 
400 years nobody ever heard from God. They call them the silent years. You didn't know what was going on until an angel appeared and spoke to John's father while he was in the temple. Listen, you may go through some dark times. You may go through some weary moments. But I promise you, cling to, hold to, trust in the promises of God. And that will anchor you in the midst of your weary, dark moments. Mark's gospel tells us God encourages weary people. God uses flawed people. And then thirdly, tells us that God forgives sinful people. He forgives sinful people. Now, what is Mark's message in verse 4? He said, he appeared. Again, I told you John's very abrupt, or Mark's very abrupt. John appeared. What's he doing? Baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, for the remission of sins. John's initial purpose was to get a people ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he knows this. That a holy God must be met by a holy people. And that sinful people must, must be made holy before they can stand in the presence of God. Thus the question is raised. How did John prepare a people for God? And how do we prepare to meet God? Well, the answer is here in the text. We prepare first by confessing our sins. Look what the people did. Verse 5, it says, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. Again, they're going to the wilderness. And they're being baptized by him in the river Jordan. What are they doing? Confessing their sins. Now, does this mean that they went up to John, told John every sin that they had ever committed and confessed their sins to John that way? No, not at all. But what they're doing when they go to the wilderness and they're baptized by John, they are confessing that they are sinners and that they are not right with God and that they need to be forgiven. Confessing your sin literally means the same thing about your sin that God says about your sin. It means you agree with God. When the Bible says that if we confess the Lord Jesus Christ, believe in our heart, God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. What does it mean to confess Jesus? I mean, it's not just lip service to say Jesus is Lord. No. What it means is that you believe with all of your heart. You agree with all of your heart the same truth about Jesus that God believes about Jesus. He is Savior. He is Lord. He died. He was buried. He was raised again. And if you truly confess that, believe the same thing about Jesus that God says about Jesus, you will be saved. Well, when we confess our sins, it's the same thing. We say the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin. What I've found in our culture is one of the reasons it's so hard to get people saved in a sense is because you can't get anybody lost. Nobody's lost. You tell them you want to be saved and they don't think they're lost. I mean, confessing sin never enters their mind. Here's what we do with it. We explain it away. We blame it on someone else. We hide our sin. We excuse our sin or we downplay our sin and say, oh, yeah, I, I make some faults every now and then. I, I, I do some things every now and then I know I ought not to do. But you know what? I'm a pretty good person at heart. That's my favorite excuse because I love following up and said, oh, 
you got a good heart? I've got a good heart. Do you believe the Bible? Believe every word of the Bible. Do you know what the Bible says about your heart? What? It's deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? And your heart has deceived you into thinking you have a good heart when you don't. That's why our our hearts are so deceitful. They're so wicked. I can convince myself I am right when I'm wrong. And so we get right with God by looking at our heart and looking at our sin and realizing our sin, what God says about our sin, and we confess that sin before God. And then, also by repenting of our sin. Look what they were doing. He said he was, bab- he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the re- forgiveness of sins. It wasn't the baptism that saved them. It wasn't the baptism that washed away their sins. That was just a symbol of what was going on. No, when they stepped forward into the Jordan River and they were baptized, they were saying publicly, I have repented of my sin and I am ready for the Messiah to come. What does it mean to repent of sin? To repent literally means to turn, to turn away from. And we, when we repent of our sin, we don't just turn away from sin. It's impossible for me to do a 180, to turn away from something without also turning to something. And so repentance is a turning to Christ, which is a turning away from my sin. Why? Because I see Christ as glorious, as beautiful, as greater than my sin. And so I want him more than I want my sin. That's what repenting is. And the Bible says that repentance is a gift from God. You know, one of the curses of modern day evangelicalism in America is we have conversion without repentance. We have people who think that all they need to do is make a little confession with their mouth and have the same relationship with with sin. Nothing ever changes. And uh, it's easy believism. It's cake and ice cream, a Cadillac ride from, from here to heaven. And really there is no change in their heart and change in their life. Listen, does God make it to where his people can't sin when they're saved? No. Adrian Rogers just said he just makes it that we can't sin and enjoy it anymore after we're saved. (laughs) Because a relationship with Christ also brings about a different relationship with sin. We repent of our sin because we know what God says about it. And listen to me. Anyone who removes repentance from salvation should be charged with heresy and spiritual malpractice. Because you know, Jesus' first message, the first message he preached when he started his public preaching ministry, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you know what Jesus said in Luke 13? Except you repent, you will all likewise perish. So that tells me if you don't want to perish, you repent. If you want to perish, don't repent, and it'll happen. So John here, preparing a people to meet Christ. Let me ask you this or make this thought. You know, the same Jesus who came to this earth 2,000 years ago, he's the same Jesus who's coming again. I don't know when. I don't know how. All I know is he's coming. And he's coming with a different purpose the next time. 
The first time Mark's gospel comes as the suffering servant. The one who suffers and bleeds and dies and is resurrected for sinners. But the next time he comes, he's not coming as the suffering servant. He's coming as the sovereign judge who is going to judge unbelievers. The first time he came, he came in grace and mercy. The next time he comes, he is coming with vengeance and with wrath. The first time he came, he could say, your sins are forgiven. Those are words he will never utter to a person the second time he comes because it will be payday. Paul says he will come to execute vengeance on those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and he will come in flaming fire, he says. He is coming again. And if people needed to be ready needed to prepare to meet Christ 2,000 years ago when he came. How much more do they need to be ready and prepared to meet him when he comes again? Are you ready to meet him? Well, if you have not confessed your sins, if you have not repented of your sins, if you have not confessed Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, you are not ready to meet him. Oh, careless soul. Oh, heed the warning, for your life will soon be gone. Oh, how sad to face the dead, unprepared to meet your God. Beloved, if you are not prepared to meet God, if you're not prepared to meet Christ, you can prepare to meet him today. I promise you this, if you will confess your sins, if you will repent of your sins, if you will trust Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior and Him only, today, He will wash away your sins. He will remove your guilt. He will fill you with the Holy Spirit. And He will give you eternal life and change you forever. That's the good news Mark tells us about. That's the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you prepare to meet Him? Let's pray. Fathers, I come to you in Christ's name. I ask now that we search our hearts. I ask, Father, that we ask ourselves if we are indeed prepared to meet you. Lord, those who are not, I pray for the convicting power of the Holy Spirit who will convict of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will convince sinners of their need for Jesus. That you will draw them to him. That you will cause them to realize their hopeless condition in themselves. And that you will give them eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to rejoice in the gospel. And Father, I pray that they will repent of their sin. They will come to you in faith, believing and trusting in Jesus. Oh, Father, may people today prepare to meet your God. And Father, I pray you will bring honor and glory to your name. We'll praise you for what's said and done. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.